Amen. Well, every once in a while, I like to say that I pray that I would be able to sing. And this was one of those days. I mean, Tim lifted his leg up. I said, wow. But anyway, let's lift our hearts to the Lord. Father, we just thank you so much for your love, your grace, and your mercy towards us. And today, we just lift up the name of Jesus. He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. We ask that you would touch our hearts. Let the word be fruitful in our lives. Bless the pastor and strengthen him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Claude. So last week, my five-year-old, Jameson, came into the living room where my wife and I were sitting, and he had this pensive look on his face. His, his brow was a little furrowed, and he just looked like he had been deep in thought. He was troubled by something. So Rebecca says, Jameson, what's the matter? And he thinks for a minute whether he should tell us. And then he turns to us and he says, I don't know what to do. And she says, about what? What don't, what don't you know what to do about? He says, I have five girlfriends. And I don't know which one to marry. And he's dead serious. So Rebecca and I try to maintain our composure. He starts laying out sort of the pros and cons of the marriage viability of his, of his candidates. Um, and, and so we said, look, you're going to have time to figure this out, so don't stress. A couple of days later, he comes to me and he says, I've, I've written a letter to one of my girlfriends and I want you to help me mail it to her. So I said, okay, let, let me, can I see the letter? So he produced to me what can only be described as a piece of romantic art which he wrote to another preschooler. And I don't know if you can read it, but let me, let me read you what it says. He actually sent it to Mira Fry. I don't know if you know Jason and Karen Fry in our congregation. He said, I love you. That's a good, that's a good start, Mira. From Jameson to Mira. There's five girlfriends. <laughs> XO, XO, XO. <laughs> So when I wondered aloud whether it was a good idea to include that piece in the letter, he felt like it was an indispensable part of the letter that needed to be communicated. So while I give him high marks on candor, not so high in the tax category, we're going to be working on that. And so begins Jameson's journey into the treacherous terrain of love, romance, and relationships. So As we continue this series, Marriage, Sex, Dating, and Hookups, I want to start today by issuing a challenge to each and every person in the room, a challenge that will not be easy to accomplish, a challenge that may expose your weaknesses, your wounds, your insecurities, a challenge that will at times seem futile, a challenge at which you will probably falter on occasions, but a challenge that, if accepted, I propose will radically and positively transform your relationships with God, with your loved ones, with your friend, with your boyfriend or girlfriend, if you have one, and if you're married, with your spouse. And the challenge is this. For the next eight weeks, between now and Easter, I want to challenge you to follow and adhere to the scriptures, commands, and directives in the area of sex, 
relationships, and marriage. Eight weeks to follow God's vision for sex, relationships, and marriage instead of our own or instead of the vision that is promoted by the culture. And at the end of the eight weeks, I want you to assess your life and determine whether or not you, in fact, have found a better way. I propose to you that if you accept this challenge and if you take it seriously, you will experience over the course of the eight weeks, despite the bumps and the bruises and the ups and downs that you may experience, you will experience a life that is freer, more fulfilled, more full of love and peace, happier, more joyful, and liberated than the life that you are now experiencing. Because, and I really believe this, this is the premise of this whole series. I believe that the scripture offers a better way, a more beautiful, glorious, powerful, empowering vision of love, sex, marriage, and relationships than any other vision that we are getting from our culture or that we are making up ourselves. Amen. Thank you, baby. That's my wife down there saying amen. I'm assuming a few things in this, in this series, all right, in this sermon. One is I'm assuming that no one in here is in a perfect relationship right now. I'm assuming that there is some degree of difficulty, challenge, frustration, or discord in your current relationship. Or at the very least, I'm assuming that there are some improvements that could be made to your relationship if you're in one. I'm also assuming that if you're single, and when I say single, I just mean not married, So I'm going to only use two categories, single and married. I'm assuming that if you're single, that at times you are challenged by issues of loneliness, unfulfilled physical and sexual desires, and also possibly guilt and uncertainty around the boundaries, the sexual boundaries that you have or have not constructed for yourself. Also, my assumption is that if you are single and in a relationship, there is some degree of instability in that relationship because the, the degree of commitment between the two people is somewhat uncertain. I'm also going to assume that if you're a man, whether you're married or single, that you have struggled at some point with lust, probably with pornography and other sexual temptations that can divert your attention from God, and if you're married, also from your spouse. And if you're a woman, the assumption of this sermon is that whether you're married or single, you have experienced some degree of emotional or maybe physical, uh, unfulfilled emotional or physical needs, and that you desire a greater sense of intimacy and understanding. So those are the assumptions leading into this sermon. Man, it got real quiet in here. Okay, so let's dive into the challenges. First challenge... There are going to be three challenges to single people, and only two, and only like a couple. Well, yeah, well, there's about three for singles, and then it kind of divides up. Um, All right, so if you're single, the first challenge is this. Celebrate your singleness. This may seem, this may seem crazy, but what I, uh, what I want to explain is this. Uh, Well, first, there's, there's a blogger that I came across this week. Her name's Karina Lopez. She's a single Christian woman, and in one of her blogs, she offers a few ways that you can respond as single people when somebody at church asks you if you're single. Uh, Because single people come into church and people are always saying, oh, you're single. And then they've got something else they're going to say, right? So here's how you can respond straight out of the gate. 
When somebody asks you at church, are you single? You can say, yes, but no, I can't babysit for you on Valentine's Day. Thank you. (laughs) You can say, yes, but if you're going to yell, she's single across the lobby to someone else that you know is single, then just give me a chance to get a running head start, okay? Or you could say, yes, I'm single, but I don't feel like discussing with you whether I've been given the Pauline gift of celibacy. Thank you very much. Ms. Lopez also recounts some awkward moments uh, that that happen in church uh, to her as a single woman. She says, another favorite awkward moment for me is when the older ladies at church weddings come up to me with that look in their eye and they let me know that, quote, I will be next. She says, seriously, how would they like it if I came up to them at a church funeral and said the same thing? (laughs) Okay, so what does it mean to celebrate your single status? What it means is this. Our culture, sometimes our churches, and sometimes even internally, we make the massive mistake of demoting singleness to a second-class status. We sometimes think of singleness as being that liminal state between adolescence and adulthood and that the single state is just where you got to get through to get on to the real part. I want to say this is a huge mistake And the Bible is revolutionary in its celebration of singleness as a viable status, at least temporarily. In fact, in an era when getting married in the first century, getting married and having kids was almost a requirement, Paul wrote the following. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he writes this. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit, but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good. He's saying this to the single people. Not to restrict you, but that you may live in a way in a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord. So what Paul is saying, he's saying, look, if you're single, that's okay. That's a good thing. Celebrate that because there's a, there's a freedom that you can experience while in that state. And I want to tell the single people in our congregation that this church celebrates you. We affirm you. We honor you. We know that it is not easy to follow Christ as a single person. It's very difficult. Uh, And I also know that most of you probably have not been given the gift of celibacy. So there's an internal tension there about being single and also following God's ways. But I want to say that we celebrate your status. We want to encourage you in singleness. And the challenge, the initial challenge for you is this. For the next eight weeks, try to celebrate that status as well. Try to not pine away for a marriage or relationship, but try to Enjoy and celebrate where you are right now in your current status. We love you, single people. Amen? All right. Next challenge is this, the challenge of chastity. One of the great benefits, as Paul sees it, one of the great benefits of being single is that you are free from the demands, expectations of marriage or conjugal relationships. So as a married or as a single person, if you are involved in a sexual relationship, you, you, you're missing out on one of the basic freedoms of being single. One of the basic freedoms of being single is that you are not constrained 
or entwined. You don't have anyone to answer to. Um, now, the obvious counter to that is from a, a cultural perspective, the pushback is, well, we can be in a sexual relationship and not have commitment. Uh, but anyone with even a little tiny bit of experience can tell you that engaging in a sexual relationship immediately raises demands and expectations of you. And in fact, because there's no real commitment in that single relationship that is also sexually active, there's a greater degree of confusion and instability and frustration because there's an uncertainty as to the depth of the level of commitment. It's been reported, and this may be a totally apocryphal sort of exchange, but it's, it's been said uh, that there was a discussion and sort of a sad statement, a sad exchange between Charlie Sheen and a judge when Charlie Sheen had been arrested for um, soliciting a prostitute. And here's what he said, and, and, it, and it's a sad statement, but it's also very enlightening. The judge asked him why a man like him would have to pay for sex. And Sheen reportedly replied, I don't pay them for sex. I pay them to leave. So what he's saying is, and the tragedy of this quote, is that he's acknowledging that entering into a sexual relationship with someone creates a demand. It creates a bond. It creates an expectation. And he was willing to pay to make that expectation go away. Joshua Harris, a Christian author who struggled as a single person to figure out how to lead a life that is both pleasing to God uh, and be a single guy in our culture, he says the following. He says, our generation wished for intimacy without obligation. We wished for sex with no strings attached. We wished for the pleasure of love with none of the work, none of the vows, none of the sacrifice, and we got it. But the results aren't what we hoped for, and we're left feeling emptier than before. The intimacy, he says, is superficial. The sex leaves us dissatisfied and hungry for something real, something true. And that leads us to the third challenge for singles. And maybe I should stop and back up just a little bit. For those of you who haven't been coming to this series, um, I should have prefaced this. This is sort of uh, rated M a little bit for mature adults. So um, we, we won't get very, very explicit, but I apologize if you're um, having to cover up your kids' ears at this point. Um, the third challenge is this. Spend your free time benefiting others for God. And I want to say this. We have amazing single people in this church. We have single people, and I'm not going to point you out and embarrass you or yell, he's single or she's single across the lobby. I'll do that later after church. Um, and we do need a couple babysitters if it's not. Um, but the single people in this church, some of them are leading life groups. Some of them are serving on the dream team. Some of them are teaching our children and our youth. They're serving as directors of nonprofit agencies in our community. They're pursuing careers with a vision uh, of using their status and their positions to advance the mission of God. And so I want to say we congratulate you. We thank you. We're proud of you. Amen. If you are single and you are not involved in these kinds of activities and you want to and you don't know where to start, you can start here. You can start here. Let us know. We will connect you with life groups that are, have other single people in them. We can get you involved in the Dream Team. We can get you involved uh, in, in community service projects. Just let us know. You can put it on a connection card and say, I want to get involved. We will find a way to connect you. 
Pastor John Piper says that I would just encourage Christian single people to ask this. For this chapter in my life, while I am single, what is it about my singleness that could make me especially fruitful to Christ? And then I would encourage them to give themselves to that. Amen. All right, singles, you've been challenged. You can take a deep breath. We're moving on to the married people now, okay? All right. If you're married, challenge. For the next eight weeks, there's a, there are a few. One of the challenges I want to challenge you with is for the next eight weeks, speak highly of your spouse and do not criticize him or her for the next eight weeks. And I want to clarify what I mean by criticize, okay? Because there is a big distinction between making a complaint about something and criticizing the person who is doing the something. And this may seem like a small thing, but it is a huge thing. So, for instance, here's a complaint. Honey, you didn't take out the trash. I wanted you to take out the trash. I don't like the trash overflowing. It makes me upset. Would you please take out the trash? I'm upset at you. That's all fine. That's a complaint. That's a complaint about a specific incident, a specific piece of conduct. If that complaint escalates into, you know what, you don't care about me, you don't care about this house, you're lazy, you're sloppy, you're this, that, and whatever, that's a criticism of the person. And I want to challenge you for the next eight week, weeks, if you hear yourself criticizing your spouse, stop. Stop. University of Washington researcher John Gottman has spent years studying the effects of the way we speak to each other and the effects that that speech has on, each, uh, on the relationship. And Gottman and his team have been able to uh, determine with a very, very high degree of accuracy, 80 to 90%, 80 to 90% whether the couples that they examine will remain together in five years or not merely by observing the way they communicate with each other. And after all of Gottman's research, all of his analysis, all of his interviews, it really boils down to basically two things. He can determine, him and his team can, can, can determine how likely a relationship is going to be uh, viable for a long period of time by the, way, uh, they, by, by the way couples either criticize or don't criticize each other and whether they have a contemptuous attitude towards each other. Husbands and wives, when you criticize your spouse, if you criticize them directly, either to them or to other people, even though your language may feel innocent, you are opening a Pandora's box in that relationship that can spiral into feelings of hostility, defensiveness, stonewalling, and withdrawal. Okay, listen to what the Apostle James says about what we say, the what words we use. James says, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, he says, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. And, and then James goes on to compare the tongue to a spark that can burn down an entire forest. He's saying that what you say has incredible power in your relationship. This, this is probably the most important issue that I discuss with premarital couples. 
how they communicate because nothing will, will make a, a relationship spiral out of control more than contemptuousness, criticism, which leads to defensiveness, stonewalling. Before you know it, there's just icy coldness between the two people and they don't even want to talk to each other. Um, in fact, several years ago, I was talking to a young couple and we were talking, and as we're talking, they were getting, they were doing premarital stuff, and as they were talking, uh, the wife kept saying things like, it would be a compliment followed by a criticism. So she would say, you know, he's really coming along, but he's still got a lot of growing up to do. He's a really friendly guy, but he's pretty self-centered. Like, this was in our premarital thing. I really love him, but he's not totally trustworthy. And I was like, let's just, can we just put the brakes on all this? Can we just rewind? And let's do pre-dating counseling, right? Pre-friendship counseling. Um, when Paul in Ephesians sub, uh, directs us as Christians to submit to one another, and he, and, he, and he directs wives to submit to their husbands, he's not saying you need to live in subjugation to a tyrant. He's not saying you need to let your husband walk all over you. You need to put up with abuse. You shouldn't have boundaries. He's saying that by the grace of God, treat your husband in a way that honors him. Speak to him in a way that honors him. And men, speak to your wives in a way that honors her, respectful of one another. So the challenge to husbands and wives in this category is that for the next eight weeks, we don't issue any criticism of our spouse. Is that, is that possible? Can we do that? Because... If we do, I guarantee you, you are going to see a radical difference. You may think of the criticism. You may say it under your breath. You may type an email and leave it in your draft box. You can write it down on a piece of paper and put it in your back pocket. Just don't say it. Just don't say it to him or to someone else. Um, Don't criticize their personality, the traits about them that you don't like, their abilities, their efforts. Again, if there's a complaint, stick to that. All right, that's challenge number one for married people. This is the quietest sermon that I have ever given. I want a little amen machine right behind me just going, yeah, that's right, man. You're good. Keep coming. You're strong. Thank you. All right, the next challenge to married couples is to remain physically available to your spouse. Um, And this is to both men and women, uh, but... In general, in my experience, and I think the data shows this too, it's especially important for, um, for women to be available to their husbands unless it's by mutual consent that you step away uh, for a season. According to several recent studies, the majority of adult men think about sex significantly more often than women in an average day. That's probably so obvious they, don't, they didn't need to do a study on that. But um, According to those same studies... Men tend to want sex more often than women, and this is a quote directly from the study. Quote, at the start of a relationship, in the middle of it, and after many years of it. (laughs) The whole time. Um, And again, the Apostle Paul is really explicit on this subject. This is stuff that, you you know, we don't talk about that much, but he, he did. And he says, husbands... The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What he's saying is if you're 
physically able to avail yourselves of one another physically and sexually and nurture that relationship with one another. Don't use sex as a bargaining chip, a tool of manipulation. Don't withhold it. Don't withdraw it. Don't avoid it. Build and cultivate a deep, intimate, loving sexual relationship with your spouse. That's from the Bible. All right. Uh, And then we're going to have a couple challenges that is that are specifically directed towards the men. Women, we you got off easy this Sunday. We don't have any challenges directly uh, specific for married women, but we've got a few for men. The first one is this. Men, husbands, lead your family in prayer and scripture reading daily. According to the author J.R. McNamara in the book Media and Male Identity, Less than 20% of media profiles reflected positive themes for men. Violent crimes account for over 55% of all media reporting of male activities. McNamara says that over 30% of all discussion in the media of male sexuality was in relation to pedophilia, and male heterosexuality associated with masculinity was predominantly seen as violent, aggressive, and domineering. Men are frequently shown in TV shows and movies as lacking in commitment, and in relationships they're shown as frequently cheating on their spouses. Some of these characterizations are not fair, but some of them are. And either way, guys, I want you to know that I, if you haven't noticed, I have, that there is a male crisis in our culture. There is a masculinity problem in our society And as a church, we're called to address that. I want to say this. I believe that down in the heart of every single male in this room, there is a desire to lead. Every man in this room, somewhere buried in your heart, is the desire to step up and to stand for something. To take on responsibility, to take on commitment, to see something through to completion, to excel in something, to fix something, to do something important and valuable in life. Every single one of you men, you are born to lead. When we hear the story of David, a shepherd boy whose heart is bursting with courage, whose faith in God was so great that he was the only man in all of Israel who was willing to step out into the field of battle, lock eyes with a nine-foot-tall giant, and lead the children of Israel into victory. Despite the jeers, despite the taunts, despite his own internal fear, he overcame it all, and he led the children of Israel into victory. And we hear that story, men, we think, yes, I want to be like that. When we hear the story of of Moses going down into Egypt and facing off with the tyranny of Pharaoh, locking eyes with this dictator and saying, let my people go, and leading them out of Egypt into a land of freedom, we say, yes, I want to be like that. When we hear about the Apostle Paul being shipwrecked and beaten and, and, and put in prison and mocked, but he refuses because of his courage to give up. He continues to stand for what he believes in. Men, we listen to that, we hear that, and we go, yes, I want to be like that. And husbands, when we begin to see our role in marriage the way God sees it, that is when we become the leaders that he's designed us to be. Not domineering, not bullying, not dominating, not overbearing, but on the other hand, we are not avoiding, abdicating, abandoning, or disregarding our duties. We become true Christ-like 
leaders in our homes. We begin to understand that when the book of Ephesians says that the husband is the head of the wife, it is not a license to be domineering or oppressive. It is not an assessment that men are in any way superior, but it is a challenge to men from the scripture to step up and bring Christ into your home to lead your family in the same way that Christ leads the church. It's a challenge to you husbands. I, I had the great blessing of a father who absolutely loved God and, and did his very best to lead our family in the ways of God. And he had a father who loved God and sought to lead God, uh, lead the family um, into God's blessings. And then my mom's dad was also a man of God. Uh, and so I, I, I feel very blessed and very fortunate because I know that's not the case for many or most people. Um, in fact, this week, not this week, last week, I got an email from one of my cousins who has my grandfather's Bible. And she took a picture of his Bible and sent it to me in an email with the, with the pages open. And, and what was just really beautiful is that in the margins on my, on my grandfather's Bible, he had written my name. He was praying and reading scriptures and, and, and especially making notations about me, his grandson. This was when I was a little tiny kid. So all the way back then, this man is saying, I want to leave a spiritual legacy for my kids and my grandkids that will, that will allow them to connect with God, that will provide them with a better way, that will show them the truth about who God really is and who they really are. I want to tell the husband something. I want, to, I want to say this today, that the spiritual legacy that you leave for your family will have a greater impact upon them than anything else that you do, more than money, more than fame, more than accomplishments, houses, cars, careers, whatever it is, your spiritual leadership in your family is the greatest calling on your life. So I challenge the men in our congregation, the husbands, to lead your family in prayer and Bible reading every day for the next eight weeks. And I, and I just mean you just sit down at the table, open the Bible. You can read a psalm. You can read a gospel. You can read a, a story from Genesis. Whatever it is, read a passage and then pray with your family about it every single day. We've started doing it at the dinner table or lunch table or breakfast table, whatever it happens to be. Uh, and it's been amazing. My boys... They, they, they eat it up. Uh, and Jameson has his own version of the parable of the talents now that I'm sure he'll tell you if, you if you ask him. But it's been a very powerful tool in our family, and I want to encourage you to do it and challenge you to do it. Okay. And then the next challenge for men, and this is, this is the last one, is to put legs to that prayer and scripture reading by serving your wife meaningfully, meaningfully and sacrificially. Meaningfully meaning in a way that's meaningful to her, okay? Serve her in a way that requires sacrifice of you, but is meaningful to her. On Super Bowl Sunday, we had a bunch of international students come over, and we were talking to them, and some of them were, they were all from different countries. That's why they were international students. And <laughs> we, we had a little language barrier, and then one of them showed me a little app that I could use on my, on my phone, and the app was called Translator. And what you do is you put this app on your phone, and then one person speaks in their language, and then they push a button, and then it translates what they said into the other language. And so I was doing this with another uh, student in Mandarin. So I was speaking, 
and then pushed the button, and it translated what I said into Mandarin, and then he could read what I said. It was a, it's a very cool app. The problem is that the icon for this app, the little international icon, is right next to the microphone icon on my phone. So now when I take my phone to give a text or make an email, sometimes I'll write, I'll say the whole email or I'll say the whole text and I'll look down and it's completely written in Mandarin. <laughs> so far, I don't think I've actually sent any communications in Mandarin to anyone, but if you get one from me, then that will explain. I'm not speaking in tongues. It was just Mandarin. It's, um, here's the thing, guys. Sometimes we try to show our love to our wives in ways that are meaningful to us but don't translate to them. Because when it comes to love, your wife may speak a different language than you. You may be speaking in English. She may be speaking in Mandarin. You may think that it's an act of love to spend a few extra hours down at the office, but that may not translate as love to her. Um, although, for some men, a few extra hours at the job would be a good thing in the family. When I first started working as a lawyer, I was making more money than I had ever made in my life, and I was very proud of being able to supply and support my wife and, 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 and bring home um, money for, for her and for our family. And then when she got pregnant with Jameson, I was even more driven. And so I was downtown at the office pounding out hour after hour at the law firm while Rebecca, after, she had, after we had our first baby, Rebecca was sitting at home by herself in a new city with a new baby in the dead of winter, not really knowing anybody, totally sad and lonely. I thought that I was demonstrating my love for her by staying down at the office and bringing home uh, more money. But what she really needed was for me to sit with her on the couch, hold her hand, and listen to her tell me about the challenges of child rearing. She needed a husband who could change a diaper once in a while. She needed a husband who could hold the baby while she could go get a little bit of sleep every once in a while. She needed a husband that every once in a while could just speak her language. So husbands, your, life, your, your wife may feel loved by you when you do things like clean the dishes every once in a while, pick up the house. I'm getting dagger stares from the husbands. They're like, dude, don't even go there. <laughs> Buy a treat for your wife at the store, uh, some flowers, hold hands with her on the couch, put your arm around her in public, tell her how beautiful she looks. Uh, thanking her for the job that she does, spending some time with her, taking her out on a date, figure out what it is that translates to her and do that. Uh, Ephesians 5, 25 through 29 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Paul is saying in that passage, men, sacrifice for your wife in a way that is meaningful to her, in a way that nourishes her. That's the end of the challenges. I want to end with this, and this is for everybody. Exercise grace over the next eight weeks. If you decide to take on these challenges, exercise grace in your attempt to live up to this challenge. If you mess up, 
seek God's forgiveness. Accept his forgiveness and move on. Because I believe that God has the ability to restore the marriages that have drifted off course. And God has the ability to forgive and restore those of you whose marriages have already broken down. And for the single people in our congregation, I believe that God celebrates your status as singles. And that in your singleness, he has uniquely positioned you to focus on him. So I want to encourage you to take advantage of this period of your life and seek that better way that God has for you. Not tied down by uncertain, unstable, compromised relationships, but free to do what God has made you to do. Amen? Al, if you want to come up and pray. I just want to say that I believe God is calling all of us as Christians, not only our local assembly, but the church universal, to boldly and unequivocally present a better way to the men and women of our world. When it comes to marriage, sex, and relationships, I believe that we are called as Christians to live in a way that demonstrates our freedom and joy to all of those around us and to be a source of light and liberty that draws all men unto Christ. And so, men and women, I am willing to take on this challenge for the next eight weeks. And the question that I want you to ask yourself is, are you? Are you willing to take on this challenge and try to see if there is a better way for you to do love, sex, marriage, and relationships than the way you've been doing it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this challenging message today. Thank you for your spirit that is here with us. Thank you for the love that you've shown us. Thank you for challenging us with your word. These words are not easy. This is not a rah-rah sermon that is... uh, that's easy to deliver or, or easy to hear. But at the end of the day, Lord, we want to do what pleases you. We want to follow you. And we believe that you, you want the best for us too. You want to bring us a life that is full of freedom, full of joy, full of love, full of peace, and is better than the life that we're currently living, God. And so we're, we want to pursue you. We want to uh, accept the grace that you've given us and walk in the light that you have shown us. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.